Welcome to The Conduit, a platform where we try to bring important ideas to the modern world. Our focal points are rationality, morality, and progress. My name is Lyndon. I work in mental health case management. I study artificial intelligence, and you can find my writing at Therefore Think. I'm Josh. I work in government. I volunteer at a drug reform organization, and I'm interested in effective altruism. Thanks so much for listening. We hope you enjoy the show. Five, four, three, two, one. Ooh, I bet you. <laughs> one day we'll get there, folks. <laughs> no comments. All good. <laughs> yeah, all good. And welcome to another episode of the Awkward Virgins. Uh, it's good. It's good to be back. And um, yeah, I don't know. It's good to be back. We're here on a Saturday. Um, how how are you? What's going on? Yeah, going well. Thank you, Joshua. It's all all good on this end. It's really nice to have a weekend. Caught up with friend of the podcast, Billy, this morning. Um, first time we've hung out in person for ages, which was super cool. Um, yeah, metro regional bubble ceases to exist, has been popped. And yeah, also sitting here with my sixth principal, um, what do you call it? Spray jacket on. Spray Jared jacket. K. Yeah, I think that was called spray jacket. Mm. Um, I don't think Jared listens to the podcast, but <laughs> <laughs> that's fine. That's I, fine. I like, you know, wearing little local Melbourne brand stuff. So, Oh, yeah. Shout out to Therefore Think. That's what I'm wearing today. Um, yeah, just shout out to all the, the friends, friends and family of the pod and friends and family in general. <laughs> it's good to represent the friends and family <laughs> Yeah, I think like it's super cool owning clothes that you know someone you you know has gone into creating or you know it's representative of of their brand. It, like it just seems like uh like free energy in a like not actual energy, but it's just it's just like you're going to have to wear clothes, so mm. why not wear something that you know mm. is is representative of of people you care about. Yeah. And gets their brand out there. It's like there's there's really not many cases in life where free energy's there for the taking, but that seems like mm. one. Perpetual motion machine. That's the, the essential. Yeah, that's um, the... <laughs> <laughs> we solved it. Solved physics, folks. Um, yeah, what well, it makes me think of uh, a thought process that I was going through the other week of, and I think I kind of alluded to this on the pod, just about the phases of life that we've sort of gone through and going from being, say, a consumer and, um, you know, watching people do things to, and being a part of the world to going to being a producer and creating the world that we're living in and creating the world for other folks. Um, and yeah, that came became pretty salient to me just sort of reflecting on you and Sedge and I guess Dave as well and, um, you know, other people I know that have done this as well, just creating these small businesses or small ventures. Sam Dawson, shout out to Sam Dawson. He's got a gym on uh, Chapel Street, things like that. Um, where it's, yeah, again, it's just really cool to see that like now we are very much a part of the market. We're like creating the market and becoming a part of it and shaping and shifting the world in our own ways. Um, yeah, I don't know. That's that's some adult stuff right there. <laughs> oh, that's super cool. That that kind of stuff gets me so g'd up. You made the point. I made the point. 
but I just, yeah, I love that. Now we can say a ton of mean things about Devo if you like. <laughs> what did you have in mind about that? It's got skinny arms, horrible yeah. taste in everything other than friends. Remember when he, because I know he'll be listening to this. Remember when he used to really get into crystals? <laughs> like actually, actually get into crystals and chakras. This was classic yeah. Port Melbourne, like 20... Like 2018 Davo or something, 2019 Davo maybe. <laughs> really, he was like genuinely interested in chakras and crystals. <laughs> but like, it's a thing to learn. As as yeah. you know, like there's there's a language and there, there's all kinds of ideas contained within that culture. Yeah, yeah. It's, you know, they don't track reality very well at all, but it's, yeah, I, I don't know. I, I can see... I can see why people get caught up in these things, kind of like religion or whatever. It's like it's there is an explorative process and a learning process that goes on. Yeah, and I guess those ideas, they are so old, so it it looks pretty romantic and it, it is quite easy to get swept away in them and buy into that almost almost naturalistic fallacy or some derivative of that where, oh, something's been around for a long time, um, you know, it must be useful and true and it must still be true to this day. That's actually the genetic fallacy. Some derivative of that. And there we go. <laughs> but yeah, no, Devo's a great guy in, <laughs> in all jokes <laughs> yeah. aside because he will be listening and no, yeah, good people should get shout outs. So shout out to Devo. He is a great man. Yeah, um, no, he's always been a voice of reason, I would say. Uh, not to, because, you know, you always hear uh, like, oh, street smarts is the opposite of book smarts as, as it's like this sort of denigrating way of saying someone's smart. Um, not to mean it in that way, but someone just with a lot of common sense, I would say Davo is. Like uh, a specific example is um, someone who's really put, a lot of skin in the game and had to bear the consequences of that just with businesses. Um, he's got his, he's gotten involved in a lot of businesses. And I think as we've spoken about many a time, when you get involved in the biz in businesses and you put your actual money on the line, there's not a lot of wiggle room for uh, fallacies of thought and believing things that aren't true because the market won't allow for it. And I think that where Davo's mind is, is very much um, a representation of that, that he's, had a lot of skin in the game over the years and he's just come away with like a bit of a no bullshit attitude um and yeah it's it is really a pretty versatile way of thinking as well yeah i wholeheartedly agree i think he's been very much uh someone who's been tempered by experience in just like a lot of constructive and useful ways um and yeah, I, I honestly look to him as, as a bit of a role model and, um, you know, mentor in, in some ways. Like, you know, I consider, like, mentor in sort of a very loose, loose sort of defined sense. Just like, you know, some, someone you can observe, someone you can learn from, look up to, um, that helps improve the steps you take on your own path. And, yeah, I would say that's a mould that Devo definitely fits. There's something extremely non-trivial about how he views the world and the things he has to say because I would say he is someone who, like someone who has opposed my ideas or whose ideas I disagree with, like 
there's a big clash there in in a lot of ways but someone who for the amount of clashing that goes on makes a ton of sense yeah. i guess if that makes if yeah hopefully that makes sense but like you know there's people out there who have ideas that you disagree with um or perspectives on the world or views and there's massive clashes with how you view things but there's not a lot of sense behind the clashing hmm. but whereas with dave it's like the clash packs a punch and that you always come away from conversations with him going, huh, yeah, like maybe I was wrong about this or, oh, that's really interesting. I'd never thought about that. Yeah, I think, as you said, call it street smarts, call it experience, call it, well, I won't call it maturity, that's for sure. But <laughs> <laughs> yeah, call it whatever you, you want. Davo's got it and the world would be better if there was a few more people like Davo around. <laughs> Yeah, he's had, he's had his two minutes of glory and then there's a little punch. <laughs> won't call it maturity. Uh, actually, like, can I... That's a maybe slightly interesting stepping stone, but um, have you read or heard or watched um, Charlie Munger's speech, I think it's like the the Harvard 86 address or whatever it was? Um, I know you've read Seeking Wisdom and it's in the back of that. Yeah. Um, a Prescription for a Life of Misery or, or something along those lines. Oh, so you're not talking about like the psychology of judgment one? No, no, no. It's, right. um, I think he's speaking to the graduating, you know, Harvard class of 86 or, or something like that. Um, and he, he gives his prescriptions for a life of misery and he built, he builds off the back of, um, someone else's three and then starts adding his own. And the very first one that he adds is, um, be unreliable. Mm. It's just like, that's, you know, if you want to, if you want a life of misery, you know, you don't want this success that everyone speaks about and you want to ensure that, you know, there's a high probability of you, um, you know, being miserable and, and living just a poor life. And the whole, the whole speech is tongue in cheek. He's like, be unreliable, yeah. like never uphold your end of the bargain. Um, always let people down. And I think that's, that's somewhere where Davo does shine like he's i think someone who's extremely reliable um trustworthy in difficult and complex situations and and obviously he's a fallible human but i just think that's that's something that i always look to him for you know i might consider myself analytical calculated at times whatever but that can mean nothing at the end of the day if you're not reliable and a trustworthy person i think david has got a fair bit of that yeah i like it it's uh very much in line with a lot of Naval's wisdom, just about building capital, social capital, career capital, about the idea of working with someone over a lifetime and building a relationship. Uh, um, or I guess the common thing that's said about investors or what are they called? Venture capitalists. Venture capitalists, investors, folks of that nature, um, is that you know they're not buying into a company. They're sort of joining a family or building a relationship um and yeah i think that is yeah pretty insightful and very much the case and i think it it connects with something i was thinking about the other week um this was the i guess epithet that you'll hear a lot of people say about industries and i've i've definitely said this about a lot of industries as well and it's the statement of like oh it's it's all politics there which is some sort of uh, it's another way of saying it's not 100% based on merit. So there's other things involved 
to progress in this domain other than merit. And what they're sort of speaking to when people say that is likability, potentially bias, and sure, bias definitely comes into it. Um, but for the most part, it's like likability and um, personable skills and, yeah, essentially like a popularity contest is kind of what they're kind of what they're arguing against and what they're bearish um bearish on i suppose and yeah i was kind of reflecting on that statement like oh you know that sector uh, it's all politics like if you want to get up to the top it's all politics and i kind of thought just like well yeah of course (laughs) like what's wrong with that um i'm not saying that it shouldn't be based on merit at all obviously i'm very big on the merit and meritocracy meritocratic ideas but it just seems so obvious and very valid that like if you're a nice person and people like you and like working with you, of course you're going to get higher end jobs and of course you're going to progress in, in many fields. Um, an example that I uh, a little bit of minimal experience in is like the music community. People say, and I've said it before as well, oh, it's just all politics, it's who you know, that kind of thing. Um, it's not based on like how good you are and and the rebuttal to that is like, of course, it's of course that's the case. If you're supportive of that community and you like you show up to people's events and you share their things and support them, and you're a nice person, like, of course that's going to be rewarded. Um, yeah, I don't know. I, I guess my whole thinking was uh, that just makes a lot of sense. Like, it's not a very valid criticism. Yeah, no, I I think that's all good stuff there. It is. Um probably is you know maybe this is Buffett or Munger or someone Naval um, but I, I feel like one of them said something on the lines of uh, like your network just sort of like magnifies you know like your product or your reputation or your persona sort of like whatever more intrinsic value you're offering yeah. it's like the scale of your network is just a magnification of that if you have a massive network with no actual value to offer, that's that's good for nothing. If you have a ton of value and a small small network, that's you know that's not going to go too far. And there's yeah, just some calculus that needs to be made there between ensuring you're doing the networking slash people skill sort of you know things. Um, but yeah, I, I guess like. The criticism maybe of when fields, domain, sectors become too political is just that yeah, people are advancing when there's no merit behind what they're doing and they're just putting so much stock in brown nosing and you know, things of that nature. <laughs> Shout out. Um, yeah, Reidhoff. I don't know if this is what you were referencing, but Reidhoff makes that exact point in his book. Um, and he's, he makes a point that, or I guess he uses the analogy um, and I think I've said this before, that your network is like the, the exponent on a number. Um, <laughs> remember this when we spoke about it? Yep, I do. Because <laughs> I couldn't get grasp uh, what the actual thing was. Um, but yeah, it's like the exponent. So, you know, if the number's zero, still your reach is going to be zero or your magnitude is going to be zero. Um, so I think, it, I think it'll be one to the power of zero is one, I'm pretty sure. Yeah, right. Okay, <laughs> that's your domain. <laughs> um, but the point being, yeah, you've like, you're, say, like, in a networking sense, no matter what, how big your reach is, if you've still got no substance or you've still got no actual 
value to add. Um, it doesn't matter how, f- how, how much networking you do and vice versa. Yeah, it's, it's so timely or so timeless is probably what I was going for. Obviously, in many ways, that sort of wisdom as well. But man, we can all lose track of it for sure. And I, I think um, you and I probably possibly are on the mistake of um, not networking enough. Yeah. And I remember this was, this was one of the real genesis sort of ideas behind the podcast. Yeah. It's like you and I going in our walks and, and you saying like, you know, there's there's a community out there, but we're not tapping into it. We're not building it. We're not, you know, we're not playing our part. And we were kind of, had previously been operating on the uh, idea that it's like, oh, if we read our books and, you know, do our thinking, have our walks, do our chats, um, you know, the community will come to us. And yeah, probably an erroneous idea, but it satisfied, uh, you know, our uh, like scrutiny for a lot of years, I guess. Like it stood that, that satisfied what we thought we had to do and prevented us from taking that next step. But here we are. Mm. Yeah, it's a, it's a good time. We're on the verge of uh, maybe one of my favorite months in the year. That being November slash Movember. <laughs> um, yeah, I don't know. I really like it. Well, for a couple of reasons. Like it's it's on the verge of summer, which is always good times. Um, obviously, it really like highlights or it's a time where things like donating, giving to charity are very much in the common lexicon or a lot more spoken about Um rather than just as they are throughout the year, other than, other than us <laughs> speaking about it every week. <laughs> um, but yeah, it's, it's a good time for that. I think that uh, everyone everyone is talking about it a lot more and these ideas are proliferating a lot more as well. Um, so yeah, happy times, November coming along. Yeah, so the, the link you're sort of making there is November is a great time of year um, with November being a big with, sorry, Movember being a big sort of component of November and just the general zeitgeist, being aware of charity and donating and, and sort of um, the, the things that don't get spoken about throughout a lot of the year that can go missed um, hmm. due to them being invisible or, yeah, whatever reason. But yeah. Yeah, it's it's cool. It, it really is cool to hear just you know people walk into cafes and then you know hear someone go, "Oh, you're doing Movember," or like, "Oh, you know, if you got many donations," and just like how seamlessly donating um, mm. or doing some kind of charity work or awareness work just weaves its way into natural conversation. Mm. Um, this is like not 100 percent related to that, but I think it's something I wanted to say today anyway. But we should make the point about charities that, uh, you know, I, I know that we've probably spoken about this before, a common maybe misconception or a common resistance people have towards giving to charities is just uh, the the utilization of the dollar, say. You know, they think like, they think like oh, you know, all the, not all the money is going to the cause that it's stated to go to or like looking at the overhead costs and like looking at, say, how much the CEO of certain charity organizations are making. 
um, or certain executives are making or managers or whatever it may be, the idea that not all of the dollar is going towards that cause. And again, I know we've spoken about this before and maybe a lot of people will be aware of this line of thinking, but it's kind of uh, borrowed from the entrepreneurial sphere, I suppose. But it's it's just the idea that like if you want to... Okay, so like at the end of the day, a charity is an, organiz- an organization. And if you want an organization to run properly, like you're going to need good people. <laughs> and the way to get good people is to incentivize them with remuneration and good money. And so just the idea that someone that works at a charity or higher up at a charity making good money is, um, say, resistance to giving towards that charity is, I think, yeah, just ridiculous because they, we need good people in charities to make them effective at their cause. And the only way to get good people is to pay them well. So, yeah, anyway, I just feel like that that needed to be said. No, I think that is a phenomenal thing to say and you are unsurprisingly in my view considered correct um i i always think back to the phrase of pay peanuts gets get monkeys yeah and that's 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 not what you want in charities yeah and people then have the sort of that second order rebuttal of like oh if they really cared you know they should be doing it for less money and it's like that's this person is already like giving up in the Rob sort of Wibbling sense, like 80,000 hours to work on something. Like they could be chasing status, more money somewhere else. Like they're already taking a ton of sacrifices and choosing that as their domain, hoping to produce more good than, you know, than the average um, profession does by working in that area. You want to ensure that the good people stay there and yeah, the good people are attracted to it take you know take my interests in software engineering machine learning that kind of stuff it's like don't you think it you need to pay you know say effective altruism companies you know need to pay their software engineers and machine learning engineers competitive salaries so that they aren't poached by companies like facebook and instagram so that people just become more addicted to their phones don't you think that you know it would be so much more beneficial for the world if better talent could be recruited to pro-social companies a couple of things first of all shout out to meta <laughs> no <laughs> shout out to our meta yeah fuck Zuckerberg's fuck meta. Meta. <laughs> and then the second thing is the perfect example look at how good um online systems and what whatever uh apps um what are they called websites are for like privately run companies versus government. (laughs) Like that's a perfect example. The things like Facebook where they they say they pay, I guess, like proportionately according to your skill level and value and attribution where a good software engineer is getting paid literally millions of dollars a year um, versus, I don't know, whatever it may be, a data analyst at the ABS or something like that just wildly different scenarios. Um, So yeah, obviously that's the case. And I forget what else I was going to say. Well, I definitely don't know what you're going to say, but I I think that's a great (laughs) example between government apps and privately run apps. Like, as you said, they're just, or designed, created, managed, whatever. Um, Oh, go for it. 
I think what you brought up was one of the most common resistances. What's the plural of resistance? Is there Resist a die. <laughs> <laughs> Welcome back. <laughs> We're talking about words. Um, I think what you brought up is one of the most common forms of resistance, um, which is just that... Fuck, now I've lost it. I'll cut this out. What, what were you just talking about? Uh, recruiting good talent, keeping good talent... Um, why are people it was why people don't give to charity uh, so like invisible or loss aversion scope neglect um, the companies aren't efficient not effective too many overheads I hope we keep this in <laughs> <laughs> we'll see wait it's right there it's right there uh, we were talking about Facebook okay. let's just say Maybe we'll go to this and it'll probably come up. What are some of the most common reasons that people don't give to charity, do you think? I just fucking said them all. <laughs> <laughs> all right, we'll, we'll, we'll go through them then. Okay, so, <coughs> yeah, I was um, thinking about this for the last few weeks, whatever, um, about how... So, one of probably the most prominent descriptive theory of human judgment decision-making is prospect theory. Um and if anyone knows what a sigmoid curve is, um, it prospect theory, it looks like an S basically. Oh, um, yeah. You know, it's sort of starting at the bottom, sort of flat on the bottom, then it goes up on an angle, it doesn't, doesn't curve back, and then it, um, it basically like declines again and then plateaus off. So there's a few, few key takeaways from prospect theory. One of them is that as gains and losses increase in magnitude, the level of enjoyment, welfare, or pain they cause us um, diminishes. Okay, so you know, winning a hundred dollars at the Tats Lotto feels more than half as as good as winning two hundred dollars does, or winning two hundred dollars doesn't feel as doubly as good as winning one hundred. And then the same is true for losses. Um, getting a $200 parking fine is not twice as painful as getting as a $100 parking fine. Okay, so that's one of the, the key components of prospect theory. It's just like as the magnitude of something goes up, the level at which we care diminishes mm. from relative returns. Um, sort of there's like, there's almost like a fuck it attitude. It's like, oh... What's the difference between I've got to got to pay this you know five hundred dollar thing to get this leak fixed? It could have been seven hundred dollars. Probably fucking care. It's already like caused me a ton of pain. Um, so that's that's one thing, and that sort of links in with scope neglect, just the general cognitive bias of humans not being able to comprehend large numbers very well. Like we can, we're pretty good at working with numbers up until about 10 and then something like a hundred, you can't even really think of a hundred things in your mind at once. Mm. Like you can think of the number 100, but that's an abstraction. You know, think of a hundred tennis balls. Like what does that even look like? You know, a hundred bricks. Don't know, a hundred pens. You just, you could try and imagine that and you could be, you could only be thinking of 40. 72 virgins. 72 (laughs) virgins. Uh, We only need 70 more. (laughs) 
Um, so yeah, again, the general cognitive bias there is scope neglect. And another one is um, our aversion towards losses. So a key key element of prospect theory is that we feel negative um, sort of outcomes or emotions about two and a quarter times more strongly than positive ones. So, you know, if I, as I said, if I won $100 at the pokies, that would feel, let's say that gives me 100 emotional units of gain. Cool. Whereas if I lose $100, I that I would then lose about 225 emotional units. Like there's... There's a disproportionate um, psychological experience of loss versus gain. And it's about 2.25 times stronger for loss. So, wrapping those together, we generally speaking get prospect theory and avoidance of losses um, and a, an inability to scale large amounts accurately. And I think these really do tie into how we think about charity and giving and altruism, things like that. Yeah, maybe, maybe just continue on that. How so? How how does something like loss aversion affect my want to give someone else um, money? Yeah. So generally speaking, you know, having like gi- giving obviously takes something. You know, it's like I'm giving up you know hundred dollars a week. Like, well, use $10. We'll use smaller amounts. Giving up $10 a week, then, you know, that that comes at some cost. Like, and again, we haven't, we want to avoid loss. So we try not to give. And then you and I make the case on a podcast, you know, week in, week out. Oh, it's good to give. You know, there's these returns, these rewards. But as we've said, the rewards don't scale to the degree that losses do. Mm. So, you know, whatever positive feedback you get from or you feel like you're getting from giving it might not actually um, cover the losses given that they're 2.25 times more strongly experienced and the key factor there sort of is being experienced like that's a that's a psychological tendency not a component of the real world another um another thing to throw in that's important about prospect theory is we update really quickly so, for example, like we change our reference point. Okay, what what's considered a gain and a loss? Like it's almost in- instantaneous. So an example of this might be, you find fifty dollars. Just walking down the street, fifty dollars blowing around in the wind. You look around, can't find anyone. You know, oh sweet, fifty dollars richer. Great, it's been a good day. Um, you shove it in your pocket. You know, go go on with things. You know, you go walk up to the shops. You fumble around your pocket and you've lost the $50. It's blown out. That will bring you back to a point that is less than your original starting point because of the loss and the speed of updating or the how losses are experienced and the speed of updating. So you know, whatever gain you got from finding $50 from a psychological perspective, you would very likely lose that and then some because of how, yeah, loss is experienced. And that once you had the $50, that was rapidly updated to your new reference point. 
you're then thinking about, okay, the things I can buy, the things I can do with this, that's all of a sudden baseline for you now. Baseline's not where you were this morning without $50. It's Josh with $50. Mm. Sorry to go on a, a long tangent, but it's these things all tie in with, um, I think, how we deal with charity. Yeah, yeah, definitely. It adds so much credence to the idea of automated donating. Um, as we've said many a time that it, uh, I guess like altruism and creating a good world, it's probably best for it not to rely on our transient emotional states because um, then we're kind of doomed for disaster if that's the case. And what you're sort of speaking to there is just exactly that, that if we don't have that experience of us losing something every single time we want to give to a charity, then it's going to be much more likely that we are, yeah, going to not see it as a negative thing, um, but perhaps see it as a positive thing, um, or realistically just not notice it at all, which is kind of where we're probably at with it, where, like, where we just don't even notice it. Yeah, completely. Um, and I, I think that's the important part about the rapidly updating. It's like once you decide to set $25 a week to donate or whatever, that's not, that's not even thought about anymore. And it's just your reference point is the new point with donated already embedding embedded into your life. And yeah, it's, it's not until sort of, you know, maybe once or twice a month, they're going to think, oh, wow, like some money that I work to earn probably did a disproportionate amount of good on the other side of the world or somewhere you know, this month. Like it's not until I sort of have that thought of like, oh, wow, I helped do a bunch of good things without even being consciously aware of it this month. That's pretty cool. Yeah, it brings to mind a little bit of a debate I had with the mutual person that we know about this automated donating versus conscious donating. So I guess we're speaking quite bullish on the idea of automated donating to surpass that whole process due to potentially like the negative the negative effects of as we've said like feeling the experience of pain and that loss. Um, but I guess this person made the point that that can be quite a positive experience also if if someone is in that frame of mind of like, oh, because you know, we all know, and this is one of the common, common arguments in support of donating, is that it is such a positive experience for, for a lot of people. Um, and that is one of the main reasons why a lot of people do consciously donate um, is to get that good feeling. So, yeah, I don't know. That's an interesting debate to have that like, and it's a common rebuttal. A lot of people, they just want to donate to feel good when they want to and they want to really notice it or, you know, they want to donate to things that are quite local. Like this is another big rebuttal against, um, say, the big effective altruism movement um, or automated donating is like, you know, oh, what are you doing for your local community? That sort of thing. A lot of people like to reserve, quote-unquote, reserve their donating for that purpose to, um, say, donate for really local purposes. Um, yeah, so I, I think, again, I'm, I am quite bullish on the automated donating, but, yeah, there are these genuine other sides to it that um, can be explored as well, for sure. Yeah, and I certainly hear a lot of those responses, rebuttals, criticisms, whatever you might call them. Um, and, you know, I've arrived at the conclusion that I've arrived at and I know you have too. 
um, my general thoughts of those sort of things would be sort of like you touched on. Um, I want to do good or ensuring that I do sort of as much good as possible without relying on future Lyndon being a charitable person because who knows what's going to happen between now and then. Um, yeah, I, yeah. I, there's no guarantee that I'm going to feel spontaneously charitable. So I think it's easy just to set up a system for myself like a habit. Like, you know, there's there's nothing intrinsically more moral about doing something because it was you know, consciously decided upon, let's say. You know, like if you set an alarm on your on your phone to go off every week on a Sunday and then you just donated, you know, so you logged on, you go, oh, it's time to donate. Time to log on. I'm going to donate $50 to this charity. Yep. Oh, it's, you know, that time of the week again, time to log on, donate. 50. Like just having the forethought to set that up is, I think, from, you know, consequentialist standpoint, um, they're equally moral, if not probably more moral from the automated, automated donating standpoint because it's more robust. Um, yeah, I don't know. Maybe that's sort of besides the point, but I do just think that's an important consideration. In regards to the uh, locality aspect, there's... Yeah, this will again come down to sort of different views and perspectives on the world, preferences to some degree. Um, but I think there's something to be cautious of there um, in a similar kind of argument to how uh, like capitalism, communism are held up against one another. Like there's, by sort of consistently reinvesting or donating to sort of more local environments where we're already on average better off in the Western world, um, I think that's an important consideration. Yeah. I think it's also, it devalues some of the, let's say, the moral points that you're trying to earn with the donating because it is, I think, a little bit more inherently selfish. It's like you want to see the rewards of your um, donating. And again, I'm not saying that there's any issues with wanting some psychological or moral payback from doing the donating just in our sort of reasoning about these things, we've determined that probably the most important thing isn't us being able to see whether um, you know, our money has improved the lives of others. It's, has it, what is, like, has it improved the most lives per dollar value? That's more our sort of way of thinking about it rather than us feeling validated. I'm smiling and I feel like a weight has been lifted on my shoulders because that point finally came back because <laughs> I was devastated that I lost it for so long. <laughs> Here we go, folks. This better be unbelievable. <laughs> Are you ready for the anticlimax of the century? <laughs> no, was, I was just going to make the point that I think one of the most common reasons that people don't donate is because of perfect being the enemy of the good or like that's one of the most common arguments um, that even I've gotten and that people probably put forward to us. And that is what you were talking about before, is that, say, the Rob Wibblin, they've already done so much, but they could be that little bit better. Whereas, like, that's really just not a valid argument. It's like the degrees of error that you were speaking, that you were referencing from Ilias's article. Like, they're just wildly different. Um, so, yeah, that's what I wanted to get out before, that I think that is one of the most common 
errors where people go wrong in their thinking and I think probably one of the most empty arguments against um, and like even from people in our shoes or people that are really say like pushing these causes we can get stuck in that frame of thought as well of uh, perfect being the enemy of good when a lot of the time it could just be well like just just do something is kind of the right answer a lot of the time um, but yeah I think that is a common fallacy that a lot of people fall into of like oh you know I can't figure out the perfect thing to do so I'll kind of just do nothing yeah I again agree um, I've forgotten what I was going to say there um, tip for tat maybe I'll <laughs> make a sort of lateral shift then, um, or not lateral, but just tying in with how Movember links in here. So by doing some donating you know, each week, each month, whatever, I could possibly stand back and just say, oh, no, like, you know, Movember's not for me. Like I, I'm already taking care of things from an altruistic perspective. Like I'm already sort of, you know, as the line goes, I'm giving what I can, you know, I don't, don't see the need, don't have to, whatever. However, that's not the approach that I take. I'm not donating up until the point where each a dollar either way would make or break my finances. There's still some, let's say, wiggle room. I'm trying to give what I can on a consistent basis, um, but there's always margins of error and yeah, degrees of confidence that you need or confidence intervals that you need to build into your life, I think. However, so when November rolls around, I just consider this as more like an icing on the cake thing. I can grow a mustache, do it with my friends from high school. We donate some money. We do it in a semi like almost competitive spirit about like, yeah, let's who, see who we can raise to get some money from, um, you know, all for a good cause. Yeah. <laughs> good reason to slide into some DMs. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely not. There's never a good reason to slide into DMs. <laughs> never thinking. Um and yeah, and like like that feels really great, and I can still tap into so much of the the psychologically rewarding aspects of donating and and you know building companionships with my friends. But yeah, that, again, that's like that's for one month of the year, and you know, let's say I'm feeling incredibly generous and want to give two hundred and fifty dollars. Like, cool, that's great, but you know, set up. $25 a month and you end up donating more than that if mm. you do it throughout the year. And the thing that I'm getting at here is it doesn't have to be one or the other. Like you can do both. You can, I think it's a good idea to build in that habit you know, or that quote unquote habit of some automated donating. But it doesn't stop me enjoying a bit of Movember in the end as well. Yeah, that connects so well to how I've been thinking lately because yeah, like self, I've been doing it for many years now. Um, and I don't know, I... I get this sense that like every year I sort of need to up what I've done the previous year. And, uh, and not that it's anything big, but like last year I put a bit of thought into writing an argument of why people ought to donate and put that out there. And um, I think that was really good. Um, Which was, by the way, I really like that. Yeah, thank you. Um, and yeah, this year I've had some thoughts about, again, like how I can sort of up the ante from last year. And I might do something pretty wild <laughs> but uh because yeah i don't know i've just felt like well i spoke with you about this off air there's um like the thickest thieves most people probably won't know what this is but they're doing a, a half marathon for charity and so like i guess 
a big portion of say my social media is around that and so like that's one thing that's going on a lot of people are say doing november that's one thing that's going on there's been a lot of financial hardship due to covid that's one thing that's going on christmas is coming up and so and again we we talk about this quite a lot like maybe once a month it'll come up in the pod or posts on instagram something around effective altruism will come up and so yeah i don't know i guess i've just been feeling like not wanting to say overload people with this whole donating thing um or that it's just yeah i don't know like i'm already sort of sort of doing so much like maybe i won't do movember and sign up because it's uh it's kind of superfluous at this stage there's so much donating going on um obviously not enough in society at large but say in my small ecosystem there is um and then on the other side of that i might just so i'm basically thinking of going a dollar for a dollar (laughs) so for every dollar someone donates i'll match it with a dollar of my own and that's kind of my ego mindset of like oh, i've got to up the ante of what i've been doing um and then on the other side of that i'm like Maybe I just won't register at all. Like, again, there's already so much donating going on. I'm donating. I'm donating to others. A lot of my friends are already donating to other people as well. Um, so, yeah, anyway, just a bit of venting and um, verbal dribble about that point connecting to me as well. And, again, I'm not really not really sure where I'm at at the moment. I think it's, I think it's good to voice these things um, because, like, this, I think, kind of links in with how... I'm proponent of you sort of just, you know, mind vomiting that everywhere in the way that it exemplifies. Like, there is confusion about these things. Like, no one's completely certain about how it should be done. We're supposed to, you know, pretend that we know what's the way to go about it. But, yeah, no one has perfect information. And I, I think we should feel comfortable sort of talking about these things just like how we should feel comfortable talking about money. It's like everyone's yeah. super dumb with money because no one's allowed to talk about it you can't share common knowledge and or like common knowledge can't be created because you know we don't talk about it um so yeah i think sort of just getting thoughts out there is is super useful um and it's sort of as you're talking it reminded me of a blog that um i've referenced a week or two ago um called minding your way or minding our way sorry i spoke about how it's it's written by nate saws who um is yeah now high up at the machine institute um research institute machine intelligence research institute sorry is what i was getting at um and he has a really cool post called on caring um and he sort of goes through uh similar sort of things to what i did about how like scope neglect um how our minds can't grok numbers very well, our large numbers very well. And the point that I really liked about how he sort of constructs this piece is speaking about the overwhelming sense of like, oh, there's cancer out there. And then there's, or like, you know, let's say that there's prostate cancer and then there's leukemia and then there's COVID and then there's, you know, cerebral palsy. And then there's people who are, you know, homeless and there's people who are poor that like, there's just, you know, there's kids in foster homes. There's so much, like, basically bad 
stuff out there in the world. And, you know, you and I are big proponents of progress and the way the world's gotten better. But, like, we're saying the world's gotten better, not the world is perfect. And Nate sort of makes this point that it can be so overwhelming that we get shocked into, like, paralysis by analysis. But uh, he sort of says, and this is the point that I obviously agree with, being someone who's interested in effective altruism, is, like, because there are so many, like, scary and bad things going on, that's why we need to be concerned with distributing what we have to the most important sources, like, getting it to the crux of the problem. It's not, oh, every charity gets $1 because that's all I can give. It's, there's a ton of stuff going on. Let's focus on the most horrible problems, try and get them solved, and then we'll move up the list. Hmm. Yeah, I really like that line of thinking. One thing that I was thinking this morning, um, kind of connected, kind of not, just distribution sort of sparked this network in me just now around the idea that, what do you think about this? That in a progressive tax system or a place where there is a progressive tax system in play, i.e. Australia, that just meaning the more you earn, the more tax you pay, the less you earn, the less tax you pay. Um, It's a redistributive tax system. Uh, In a place like that, earning more money is kind of just really moral because, again, taxes pay for... People with disabilities, roads, um, police, uh, ambulance, fireys, um, you know, school teachers, things like this. And it kind of is just technically true, although like not to, you can't really highlight a direct link, but if you earn $10,000 more a year, say um, $2,000 of that, is going to be redistributed to people with disabilities, people on the pension, school teachers, again, everything I mentioned. So it was just an interesting thought. Again, we've we've had our fair share of critical speakings of the state as of late. Um, and there is obviously a lot of, say, like baseline negative attitudes around people earning more money, which we've addressed as well in previous podcasts. But an interesting thought was just that in a... Re- redistributive progressive tax system earning more money is a pretty moral thing to do i guess provided that you're also in a liberal democracy where you can vote in people that are doing good things as well um and yeah i think probably australia satisfies both of those things yeah i think sort of as a general rule that holds true um yeah and i don't want to sort of make an argument here that is like you said, um, perfect being the enemy of the good. But, yeah, I think it still really does boil down to, at some important level, possibly not the most fundamental level, but one of them, um, how you've earned that money. Just, yeah, it's like, are you adding value? Are you a rent seeker? Have you just shifted tons of money around in the finance industry? And, like, yeah, while doing things to ensure the efficiency of markets... You know, that that has some value. Like, nothing is probably value-free, is I guess what I'm getting at. Um, I think it's a good general guide. It's something to consider. Yes, if I can earn more money and pay my tax and not, like, you know, tax dodge or do whatever because that's, like, that's, that's another one. thing. That, <laughs> yeah. yeah, like, you earn more money and then you just pay better accountants to ensure that you're 
Yeah. Minimize the amount of tax you pay. Yeah, I think it was, I was reading the other day. Garrett Garrett Harden, I think. Um, sort of. I think that's his name. Um, something like that. The like relatively famous ecologist sort of had had the idea that like you can never do anything in isolation. Whenever you do something, you do another thing as a byproduct of it for sure. Um, and that's sort of probably my general like hesitation, but also support of the earning more money. It's like earning more money, pay pay your taxes, sure, that's great. Um, but you're probably also going to be incentivized to dodge a bit as well. And yeah, maybe that ends up net positive. I'm not sure. But yeah, I think addressing some of the aversion towards money is important. So I'll pose to you the question I posed to Brian about veganism, but I'll reframe it um, in effective altruism donating. What do you think is like some of the best ways that we can provide the opium of the masses to make something like automated donating or giving to charities cool um, or what do you think some of the best arguments for or rebuttals of their arguments basically we've probably done a pretty good job of identifying some of the common pitfalls cognitive fallacies boundaries restrictions in place that uh, prevent us from donating Um, yeah how do you think we get around that yeah so i think so there's like an idea or a, a character of rationality where like the wise the wise decision is the always the one that you come to after the longest amount of deliberation. It's like you never act on a whim. Whereas, as I said, I think that's a character. And I think the most rational thing to do is sort of feeling motivated by this podcast or feeling like whenever you feel somewhat motivated to set up the donation, it's like just doing it, like acting on that because there's there's something really important that happens when the intuitive, emotional, motivational parts of your mind make sense to the analytical part. And I think like on an analytical, sort of philosophical, epistemological, whatever you want to call it level, you know that automated donating is probably a good thing. Yet it doesn't really speak to the hedonic part of you. As I said, I think the right thing to do is actually act on that impulse, act on that whim and set it up when, like strike when the iron is hot. And then, as I said, you up that reference point just updates automatically. It's like that's, that's now X amount of money that you never really, and like start small. I think that's the best way to go about it. It's like set up the smallest donation possible, if you like. Just get it set up and then forget about it. And then two months time when you realize you haven't actually missed that money, just log on, update the amount and then forget about it again. That's what I did. I just incrementally bumped it up and kept realizing that, oh, well, not once have I looked for that money. Mm. Yeah. It's so funny. Again, like you spoke to just how quickly our baseline resets and how quickly we update because yeah, it, we've spoken about this many a time, but we just, we expand to the the limits that we set on ourselves kind of thing um and whether that be time or work or whatever it may be money is such a clear one um yeah you just you really just don't notice it if you just sort of take care of it yeah and that's and that's one of the reasons why i did want to set this up early because that's let's say another criticism is like oh once i've financially made it then i'll do it you know it's like once i'm taken care of 
then I'll do it. But the thing is, because of that rapid updating, you never consider yourself to have made it. That hedonic treadmill, that's the general cause here. You know, you're spending rises to the level of your income, like consistently. That's just like across yeah. basically every financial study that's ever gone on. Yeah. No one, no one accrues things. They just, mm. they earn a higher wage and then just like start spending it on a more pricey things. So, yeah. Um, yeah, that was why I wanted to embed it into my life early. Not only does that then ensure that I'm donating over a longer period of time, but if I can make it work at less than $70,000 a year, I can make it work after $70,000 a year. Yeah, and basically what you're speaking to is the difference between going from zero to one to one to two, um, or to take it back to our previous lives, um, like one thing you're always big on, it's so much easier to just increase your cardio rather than going from doing no cardio to doing some cardio. Yeah, exactly. Like that's that's one of the best reasons I think to keep, just to make side tangents, like keep cardio in all year round yeah. is because it's like, because people are like, oh, I'm, I'm bulking now. I don't need cardio. Yeah. Like, well, then it's going to be a massive, <laughs> yeah. yeah, massive shock to the system once you need to start dieting and start cardio again. Yeah. It's like, and well, this is something that I borrowed from Thomas Sowell, really. He always just said like incremental, not categorical. Like he was always kind of like, oh, Definitely. you know, this, this policy is impacting, you know, the whole economic landscape in this way. It seems negative. You know, we should adjust it, not get rid of it or not bring in a new policy. Like let's, let's tweak dials, not switches. Yeah. Couldn't agree more. So another, like that's, I think another important point is just like, as I said, acting on, acting on the whim. I think the right thing to do is like pause the podcast right now, set it up um, and feel great about it. Wait, can I just on that? So what do you think about this then? Do you think folks like us, well, specifically us, we should be behaving in a more, I don't know, like motivational, evangelical, Tony Robbins sort of way if if you think that's an effective mechanism for people to start donating? Like, do you think that the the purveyors of these messages should be behaving in a more, yeah, like evangelical, motivational way? No. Um, <laughs> sorry. <laughs> No, it was an answer. It was a question. That was an answer. No, I, I think um, I think the the key component here was kind of like what I said about when the motivational aspect part of your mind um, speaks to the analytical part. Like when there's this synchronicity between system one and system two, then you're on to a winner. Okay, and system one is really really good at being in tune with things in the world, but system two comes across and is like, oh, does it, like what are you seeing over here? And it shouldn't just dismiss it out of hand. Like when system one is picking up on something, system two needs to, you know, probe the area, search and seek and be like, actually, you were onto something or no, you weren't. You've seen me now explore this area. Now you can trust that it's empty. Like and there's something really important about that working with the two, two cognitive processes. Um, sort of what I'm getting at here is like a division of labor thing. Like you and I can, you know, let's, hopefully we're not hindering from a motivational sense, but if we more so come across with the reason-based arguments for effective altruism, then yeah, that's fine. Maybe it takes someone to see some graphic pictures, you know, on YouTube or in the paper or whatever, and then those two things click and both system one and system two get on the same page. 
there's an infinitesimal amount of people out there or possible configurations of people who we could convince to donate. And as such, I think there's basically like infinitesimal arguments about how to get through to those people. Yeah, so yeah, I agree. Keeping sort of going with this train of thought. Another thing that I think um, should help make effective altruism, you know, more um, acceptable to the masses is that I think it draws on principles, let's say, of both collectivist or individualistic style, you know, economic philosophies. Let's say like capitalism versus communism. Okay. Communism being concerned with, um, you know, the whole and redistribution. Whereas capitalism being more in the, um, the net good is derived by us acting as individuals. Okay, that's the most good is achieved by that. And I think I'll, I'll speak to the capitalism side because the, like the redistribution, the communism side, that's a little more obvious how that wraps in with effective altruism. Yep. But with capitalism, I think the important principle to learn here is that capitalism functions via um, exchange that generates positive reward. So I can give you something that I don't value as much as the thing that you're going to give me. And the same is true of the other person. They're getting something that they value more than what they're having to give away. And this links in with um, Peter Singer's general argument where it's like, if we, if we can prevent something... If we can prevent something from happening without having to give up something of equal significance, then we ought to do it. Hmm. And that is almost a capitalistic argument. It's yeah. like just in the regards to moral significance. It's like this $10 a week, really, yes, I value it and I don't want to give it away because hashtag loss aversion, but... I really don't value it as much as how it's going to help someone else pay for food for two weeks. Definitely. And yeah, as I said, I think the fact that it sort of speaks to both capitalistic and communistic principles is something that we probably need to get out there a little bit more. This definitely, this is, uh, I would say one of the biggest strengths of the effective altruism movement. Um, and, it is kind of the answer to the question that I was posing before, I think, is that they've figured out a way for it, for donating to become really sexy, I think, to because effective altruism is pretty, um, what would you call it? It's pretty in vogue with like the... It's a culture uh, in and of itself, I think, which is important. Specifically with like the um, Silicon Valley folks and like people in that era arena. Um, and I think that again, they've done a really good job of, um, yeah, again, making it say this subculture because I think, yeah, again, like you have to take into account that like we are, we are kind of selfish in that way, in or in a lot of ways we are kind of selfish. And, um, if something is gonna, like if something is going to feed that a little bit, then it, it's probably, it's going to be, better for a lot of people 
um, or it's going to say appeal to those folks that aren't just acting purely based on altruistic terms, let's say, like the Peter Singers of the world. Um, and I guess the other thing I was going to say was, um, yeah, is, is the term marginal utility that $10 to someone else is worth a lot more than $10 to me? Yeah, I think it is marginal utility, yes. Yeah, and so, yeah, again, and, and that I would say is a good argument for just donating in general, but specifically the uh, the automated donating of small amounts is because, again, one of the other rebuttals to people like, oh, what's what's 2% of my wage going to do? Well, it's like marginal utility would say that, again, it could, uh, you know, 10 bed nets for whatever that costs, like $50 or something, is kind of enough to save a life over a year, something like that. Again, the numbers aren't exactly on point, but um, the the thrust just being that your small amount of money and the pleasure that you can gain from it or the utility that you get from it is wildly different to what it can do in a different context. Yeah, and that's, I guess, to speak to the effective component of effective altruism it's like don't donating the two percent ensures that it's like donating five percent to a different company Mm. it's maximizing the amount of good that it can do per dollar value it's like this is of the redistribution markets this is the most efficient of them like that's that's what it's striving for ensuring that the loss you feel is being maximally repaid on the other end, like magnified to the degree that it can. Mm. Yeah. Um, okay. What What else is there? What other, say, ways that, or really persuasive, um, persuasive ways to advocate for this? Mm, well, I think you can only put ideas out there and like some, we always have to convince ourselves. I think like it doesn't, someone can provide the, um, the working material for you, but you still need to use that material to convince yourself. I think like, like a mind is never changed in isolation possibly, but ultimately I think you're still the final ruler for the most part. The point that I'm getting at is, um, I think you just need to think these things over. Like, if you're not convinced yet, then I think you still need to think through them. Um, So, I think other considerations are the invisibility of something doesn't mean that it's not important or it shouldn't be addressed. Um, And like we sort of spoke about with the locality discussion, yeah, it's it's nice to see problems. It's nice, or it's not nice to see problems. It's nice to see problems being solved. Um, Yet, just because you know you're not seeing someone who's homeless from the age of three onwards on the other side of the world doesn't mean that's any less important Mm. and i think just thinking these things through and realizing hey that's actually how my brain works though it makes me feel like it's less important that's a problem and that's why i think i'm so interested in this whole lifestyle engineering cognitive biases all these things because you know, even the discussion of computers versus humans, like, oh, you know, computers will never do X, Y, and Z. It's like, well, that's fine. They do JK and L tremendously better than humans. 
So the division of labor, it's like what is the optimal place to draw the boundary between what it does and what we do? And I think the same is true of donating. Automating that, putting that in the environment and not something that's based on how you feel within your head is the best way to go about it because your brain does discount things it can't see. It does discount large numbers. You know, the life, saving the life of the 11th person doesn't feel as important to your brain as saving the life of the first. And that seems like a problem. Um, yeah, I've sort of just yeah. gone over, all over that territory again, but I think just yeah. getting those ideas out there. Yeah, I like what you said about just thinking about it. Um, and it brought, brought to mind, I guess, one of the most persuasive thought experiments um which i know you know is the veil of ignorance um which was john rawls in i guess the 70s um basically john rawls thought experiment was if we were looking to create a say perfectly just society where no one was real you know we didn't have these like mass yeah go sorry can i jump in there i think possibly the framing is if we were trying to create a society that we didn't know which position we were going to hold in it, like the goal isn't necessarily to be a just society. It's that we're creating a society behind this veil of ignorance. I don't know what position, what social class, what you know status I'm going to have. How should we construct it, therefore? Yeah, yeah, exactly. So if we want to create the most just societies possible, but there is that veil of ignorance that we don't know where we're going to end up, then what, you know, what should we do? What sort of um, tax system should be in place? Um, what sort of policies should we put in place? Um, and yeah, I think that's always been one of the most persuasive thought experiments to put myself through. If if nothing more than the fact of the consideration of, oh, like, okay, it's just, it's luck where I am. And it, I could very well have easily been someone else. Um, but it does just create that like degree of separation or objectivity where you put yourself behind the veil of ignorance and you, okay, well, if I didn't know who I was going to be, if I didn't know if I was going to be um, having this good job, if I, if I was maybe to end up on the street, what would I want the world to look like? Um, so, yeah, anyway, I just say that too because it has been quite an influential, um, influential idea so for people to reference. Yeah, I, I think it's a great one and I didn't mean to sort of cut you off there and no, try and no. beat you to the punch. It was because the thing that I, I think the remove, like the idea of the the veil of ignorance and the removal of not, oh, I'm already in society and let's try and make it just. It's that actual, hang on, if I wasn't sure where I was going to be dropped in it, how would I want that society to be? That's really, really important. I just didn't want people to get sort of hung up on the idea of like, oh, we're already trying to create a just society. Mm. Yeah, yeah, of course. It's, yeah, if, you know, some sci-fi movie, Matrix, whatever, like it's just, if you were just teleported into some society, there's a lot of people, there's a lot of positions that you wouldn't want. And that goes to show the society probably has a fair bit to do. Yeah, it actually also made me reflect on our conversation the other week about what the role of the state is and like how paternalistic the state should be. And maybe I was like, oh, fuck, like, there's probably a lot more to reconsider around that when we think about, I don't know, I guess fiscally would be the way to put it, but when we think about the money, um, because we that is something that the state has a heavy hand in, is where people's money goes, obviously, <laughs> hence tax. 
Um, and like I'm quite bullish on that. I think that is a great thing. I think it's a good system. I'm all for that system of redistributive tax. Um, so yeah, it was it was a cool point of reflection to be like, oh, you know, maybe, you know, maybe I need to recalibrate that thought process a little bit more. I'm so glad you mentioned this because this sort of links into something that I was thinking during the week about how just how like the processes that prospect theory describes let's say are just they do lend us or lean us towards such warped conclusions like people complaining about fucking government taking you know, taking like x y and z amount of my money it's like it was never your money <laughs> like <laughs> the wage you're being paid mm-hmm. is based on the amount of tax that's get, like what (laughs) i can't even finish that thought it's just like let's say you're getting paid fifteen hundred dollars a fortnight and then it's just like after tax you're being paid fourteen hundred it's like you're going around kicking your shoes and being like fucking government blah blah blah, like taking a hundred dollars yet if you were paid a hundred fourteen hundred a fortnight and not taxed a cent you would think that was amazing yeah Yeah, it just goes to show how quickly we update yeah, it's like yeah. you see you see the gross amount of income and then the net net income after tax, and you're like, oh, freaking government! <laughs> <laughs> it's like you wouldn't be paid that much to begin with if the government wasn't taxing. So just relax. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. But it also just highlights, like again, a, a Thomas Sowell idea of that top one percent. It's like we're all more than happy to bitch about um, taxes when we're getting taxed a lot, but when we're we're, when we're the receivers of tax benefits, um, when a pandemic swings around and we need some tax help or some government help, um, then, then our tone changes quite quickly. Um, so, yeah, again, it, it's just it's quite myopic thinking and like we can kind of only see as far as our immediate environment um, in the point that like we're neglecting the idea that throughout our life, like I've said this before, the number one predictor of wealth is age. Throughout our life, we're going to progress through these income brackets and wealth brackets. And, you know, we're going to be poor as we're younger and rich when we're older. Obviously, if you've done things richer, sorry, richer when you're older. Um, yeah, if you've done things with half a brain, that's probably going to be the case. Uh, but yeah, it's so quickly just, it's so funny how just the attitude just shifts. Like that's all that matters, obviously. And I guess... To connect it back, a big goal of effective altruism is to kind of, I don't know if short circuit's the right word, but kind of get around these fallacies of thought. Where like, yes, you're in that phase of your life right now, but you know there are obviously other things that are going on. And again, the industry that we're in, um, the insurance system of uh, helping people with disabilities, that is the whole thought process behind there. It's like every Australian flips the bill for to pay for insurance because you know we might get in that place one day i might get my leg amputated and need help from others as well um so yeah it kind of all circles around yep completely agreed i was just thinking about how probably another like another thing that might help get effective altruism into the zeitgeist to make it a more common practice is um, and I think I gave a, a similar answer or discussion point when we spoke with Brian about how just thinking about how it's going to be viewed retrospectively, like in the future, um, you know, trying to be on the right side of history. Um, and sort of similar arguments were made 
around, um, you know, when trying to abolish slavery or provide women with the vote, all these really important watershed moments. Um, did I say vote or boat for the record? <laughs> I heard vote with a V. Okay, that's good. Because then I said watershed and I was like, did I just say boat? <laughs> <laughs> no networks. <laughs> yeah, far out. Um, <laughs> see, computers, so much more reliable than this. Like, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, so, you know, uh, some of the rhetoric around that time was, you know, you don't want to be the one who was that standing there opposing slavery because, you know, like future generations are going to look back and be like, look how, look at these early adopters. Like they were like very moral people on the right side of history. You know, X, Y, and Z person, they opposed it up until the last point. And, you know, maybe this isn't going to be as, you know, big in the headlines as sort of slavery was. But I think just doing that tiny little thought experiment where, like, how are future generations going to look back on this issue? No, they're probably going to look back more favorably um, on the early adopters of automated donating. Again, that's not the only thing to consider about future generations, but it's another tiny piece of the the puzzle to consider. Um, Yeah, and again, I I was just thinking about how some of these big moments in history um, were sort of influenced. When it came to women's rights, a lot of the the rhetoric was around it's going to benefit men. So possibly, you know, we need to consider um, speaking more to um, you know, how donators are going to benefit, not just donatees. So that was, yeah, one element. It's like, oh, women should you know, be recognized and like have a chance to become educated because that's going to make them better wives and daughters and sisters and whatever. And I'm not saying that's the only reason for women's vote. I'm just saying that's how the rhetoric was sort of formed. So it was impactful. Um, a lot of the rhetoric around animal um, rights is around, or the reasoning and the rhetoric is about inconsistencies or just like showing that where the reasoning um so racial racial rhetoric is typically around inconsistencies and just like that you know biology doesn't just stop here and change here like this there's probably shared um shared traits here these you know people are just people like us um and rhetoric in regards to animal welfare is more like well where do the conclusions lead if you follow them all the way so possibly like yeah there's some some already mapped out territory there about how these really important ideas have been conveyed in the past and the tactics used. Sorry, that was all a bit long-winded and, and circly, but just, yeah, speaking to the advantages, highlighting um, how one argument or one perspective is more consistent than the other. Um, and if it's a progressive one, highlighting it that, you know, it's more consistent in the status quo when assessed um and yeah and the other one is just following reasoning to its to its logical end hmm yeah i know like it's all uh it's all useful useful stuff um because yeah there obviously is a lot of resistance and there is not 
I don't think there's a clear. I don't think there's a clear uh, consensus on the effectiveness of awareness movements, movements of awareness. You know, I guess a a common what would you call it criticism of movements of awareness, things like black squares or um, you know I've spoken a little bit about like symbolism and stuff like that, is just that they people feel people may feel like once you've done that like that that's all enough that they lack the effectiveness because they are just symbols um these movements of awareness that are effective and the symbolism that is effective is when it i guess uh transcends just the symbolism of it um where you know say posting something will have some other effect um Anyway, the point I'm making is that it's not always just a good thing to just raise awareness. Like we need to have more thought about, again, what can actually be effective in influencing one's behavior. And a lot of the time, like just turning that inward, influencing our own behavior. And like we've spoken about, trying to get around our own cognitive biases. But what you're speaking to there is sort of widening that lens and being like, okay, looking at society at large, what are some ways that we can probably shift larger groups? Um, and yeah, I think that's all, that's all effective stuff because it can't, it can't just be awareness. Um, like the, it can't just be posting, are you okay today? Because like that just, that's really fleeting and it's really, it's thin, it's, uh, it's transient and it's unsubstantial um, a lot of the time at least. Yeah, needs to be more to it basically. Yeah, as, and I, I guess this is the kind of point you effectively made, but when it comes to changing behavior of others, like the most impactful thing you can do is act in a way that exemplifies the kind of behavior that you think should be adopted by others. It's, yeah, being seen to be symbolizing just increases the likelihood of others, you know, showing support for the symbol. Yeah, mm. you know, actually changing your behavior makes it easier for others to adopt the same behavior that actually supports the end in and of itself. It's, um, yeah, incentives and all that. Humans. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, um, yeah, I think that's probably a good place to round out that, that discussion. Yeah. I'll say one more thing. Sorry. I think it is a good no, place go. to round out, but I'll, um, I think again, this kind of links in with my, um, discussion with vaccines the other day talking about um like a watershed moment in history about how like no we need to update and realize these are incredibly safe perfect enemy of the good kind of thing not saying they're 100 percent perfect but we need to decouple ourselves from these kinds of ideas and i think ideas about science are going to have spillover effects about effective altruism Effective altruism does take an empirical, scientific attitude and lens to the idea of doing good for the world. And I think once we, you know, this might be a bit utopian, but I think once the social, you know, acceptance or opinion of science is improved, altruistic ideas and their implementation will also be improved as well. I think that is kind of yeah. more what a flourishing society looks like. I couldn't agree more. It seems like the logical end 
to reasoning, reasoning in these manners is being altruist, uh, being an altruist. Yeah, and it just to link it back to the cognitive biases again. Like we we sort of think now our post hoc justification is well, of course, like men and women should be treated equal, or of course, blacks and whites should be treated equally. But it's like that wasn't how it was for the vast majority of history that only came after the enlightenment you know you've got the enlightenment and you've got you know the much more equal treatment of women different races animals and you've got all these the expanding circle right peter singer it's yeah i know i'm preaching to the choir but that's kind of the idea that i was getting at a little bit with like no, this pushback on vaccines and these supposedly harmless questions are having important second and third order consequences in other domains. Yeah, I like a lot of that. Um, again, to shout out our man, Sam Harris. <laughs> I don't know if you caught, he just recently interviewed John, John McWaters. Um, John McWaters is a linguist, phenomenal, phenomenal uh, uh, phenomenal, phenomenal, phenomenal intellectual he is. Um, I really, here's something, I really, really love, I guess, like listening and reading um, linguists because you, like the way, obviously, you know, we're big on Pinker, that's his, say, that's his trade um, and John McWaters as, as well. Like one, obviously, they just drop like these nuggets that you've never heard, like just words that you've never heard before. Um, but yeah, they're, just the way they speak and their sentence structure. Um, so he's, yeah, he's up there with one of the more eloquent human beings out there, I would say. Anyhow, the point he was making and that I hear strands in your statements just there was just not being, um, not taking where we are for granted. Like you said, like, yes, we are in such a good place, but we, you know, for America, like they fought a civil war to get there kind of thing. Um, and like, we've only had this prosperous moment. Like we've mentioned the hockey stick of progress. We've only had this, say, for the last 10 minutes, as they say, um, where we we ought to just, we, be, we better be careful about just treating these things as givens. Um, so like, yeah, we've spoken a lot about that before. Um, but he sort of makes a point that this, this rhetoric around anti-racism is just the most... Uh, elementary level logic and argument and quote-unquote science that has been pushed since the French Revolution, like early days of French Revolution. Like there are so many more insightful, interesting things that we can argue about. And the fact that in America at least, um, like over the last year or two, that it's just been about this really myopic, elementary, anti-racism, wokeism, um, yeah, it's kind of just such a big waste of resources. And like, obviously, again, like these things need to have advocates and pushers and fighters for their causes. Um, but yeah, it's kind of just taking up a lot too much of the intellectual real estate. And not that it should matter, but John McCorder is an African-American. Yeah, yeah. Like, yeah. you know, you might listen to that and go, ooh, like, but, you know, yeah. White guy with the name John, like, like hang on. Yeah. No, it's like um <laughs> in uh the the madness of crowds <laughs> where yeah, he mentions yeah. the Thomas Sowell 
um, review. This this guy is like a Harvard, no, not a Harvard, like a Cambridge or Oxford review. He did a review on one of Thomas Sowell's books. Um, I forget exactly what he said, but he's like, and you would trust this from a white guy, <laughs> something like that, from a rich white guy. Yep. <laughs> one one Google of Thomas Sowell will tell you, he's like, he grew up in the streets, poor African-American. Yeah. Like, <laughs> Anyway, that's that's what gives him. That's uh, why he's such a heavyweight. He's got yeah. real skin in the game. Um, ooh, was there one more thing I was going to say? Um, I can't remember. But that was a great passage about what you just said there. Um, Thanks. No, nah, I think it's gone. That's okay. Um, bullish, bearish, adult. This week, I threw out multiple pairs of underwear and socks because they had too many <laughs> holes in them. Oh, man. I've, yeah. I, I was, next time I came up, I was going to gift you some socks because every time I see you, your socks are just toes poking through. Um, it's atrocious. But another thing, my track pants like that I wear almost daily have worn out in each, each place where my each bum cheek is. So much that there's like very, very, very thin. Like my thinking was like, that's when you know you've been in a pandemic for like two years, just wearing these trackies like every day, all day, pretty much. But yeah, bit of a mess. So yeah, I, I'm going to lump that in the most adult thing. I, I was I was trying to think about it. I was like, why am I like this? And <laughs> for one reason, my dad's like it. So um, I was like, I don't know if it's just sort of growing up the way i did like that's that's not the only explanation for sure but um yeah it was always this case of if it's functional still like still use it like you don't you know you don't need pants you don't need, like <laughs> and to speak <laughs> to your point <laughs> about um being in a pandemic i was just walking around um home the other day just like just wearing my briefs <laughs> and i sat down <laughs> and <laughs> I'd say my member was like, <laughs> fell, was like, I looked down and it's sitting through the, through the hole. hole. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And I was oh, like, dark times. Yeah. Actually, maybe these can go. <laughs> yeah. Like they are still functional, but I was like, if that's the argument, they're going to be sitting here. Yeah. <laughs> it's like the trouser snakes hanging out. And that's your threshold of functional. <laughs> Sorry, Eb, I should have been like, hey, if you're listening after this point, <laughs> <laughs> next, next I'll put a warning on it. Um, that's hilarious. I think that's just a guy thing, honestly. Like, all oh, guys, I, I know, are probably the exact same. I'm the exact same. I wear things to the absolute dissolution of them. Yeah, I, I don't think that's true because, like, you know, I guess I can falsify that claim. Right. Almost instantaneously, like thinking of some guys and just like they, you know, they will splash <laughs> on new things. And I, I, you know, I think you and I probably experience it from, you know, let's say like mothers, sisters or women we date. Um, Cause it, it's always that, like, I'm, I'm always told to like buy new socks or buy new clothes from typically women. And I think that comes with women just being more tapped into that social like awareness of how people are judged, you know, men just being much more myopic and, and not quite as socially aware as, as women are. And I think specifically, or like most importantly, let's say the women that you date, like the woman that you're dating doesn't want to see you wearing scrappy clothes because your clothes are a symbol of your status. And as we've said on previous podcasts, 
um, that that is something that they're very intrinsically tapped into. Um, yeah. And yeah, so I think that like that just links in with the whole. It is important to sort of look after yourself for the other people that are in your lives. Yeah, it makes it makes you really miss the Christmases, getting socks and jocks in Africa every year. This year, I'm getting Artificial Intelligence: A Modern Approach by Peter Norveg and uh, oh, I've forgotten the last author. Sorry. Um, like mm. 1200 page textbook. Man. So I was like, it's moved on. Eb, <laughs> <laughs> I need this for both. <laughs> so this is all completely anecdotal and completely off the point at this point. But I was like, looking through my uni subjects, I was like, yeah, I get to do, finally get to do my artificial intelligence one. Um, first trimester next year, looked at the price of the textbook and I don't buy all my textbooks, but I was like, this is one that I definitely want. I was like, oof. The new version is north of two hundred and fifty dollars. I was like, that is an exy textbook. Yuck. I was like, oh, perfect. I'll message Eb and be like, oh, can you split this between my Christmas and my birthday present? And then I was like, oh, Eb's birthday is between now and then. <laughs> message. I was like, hey, what do you want for your birthday? Because <laughs> by the way, I want this for Christmas. <laughs> yeah, that's a bit of a sting. The old textbooks. What about you though? Most adult um, thing, bullish bearish. Yeah, I, as I mentioned to you before, <laughs> speaking of tax, actually, uh, I've I've racked up a bit of a tax bill. Um, so the most adult thing I did was um, set up a payment plan for that, which was actually super easy. But um, yeah, that was that was that. Mate, can you please approach this like automated donating? Pay more throughout the year and then get the ATO to give you a present at the end of the <laughs> year. It's so much more fun. Yeah, no, definitely. Uh, it was just because I, I didn't have my hex linked up to my um, employer. So I, I haven't been paying hex this whole time, um, which I finally did the other day. Um, set that up. But yeah, bullish or bearish, I'm bullish. Again, I've mentioned, I've probably mentioned this book before. I've definitely mentioned this author, Michael Sandel's Justice. Um, yeah, when I reflect on it, that's probably one of the best books that I've maybe ever read. Just, and again, there's so much to, comes into like, well, what's a good book? Timing, etc. But this just covers so many bases of like what a good book is. Concise, insightful, a lot of depth, a lot of width, quick, easy-ish read. It can be like introductory, but it's also like kind of the more esoteric ideas as well. Um yeah, very bullish on that book, Michael Sandel's Justice. Um, and also for folks out there, his YouTube series where I don't know if the book is based on that or vice versa, but millions of views. Um, his, it's a lecture series, basically, his whole course. Basically, he taught a course called Justice at Harvard for 20. I'm not sure if he still does. He might still do. Um, but he sort of goes into a lot of the topics that I guess we speak about. Morality, um, uh, yeah, economics, things things like that. But he's like a moral philosopher. But yeah, bullish. Yeah, I'm... Um, one, I think that's super cool. Like it is... A book like that can just lay such a foundation for making sense of like everything beyond that point. You know, like years, decades later, political discussions, family, like whatever. Just 
not that book specifically going to relate to family, let's say, but like some books really carry such weight in how you make sense of everything Hmm. beyond that point after you read them. Um, So that's one point. The other thing I was going to say is uh, I'm really, really enjoying, this is not a, um, not a recreational book, but one of the (laughs) computer science textbooks that I'm working through currently by John Guttag, Introduction to Computation and Programming Using Python with Application to Computational Modeling and Understanding Data. That sounds super technical, but it is beautifully written. Like, so I'm only, you know, 10, 15% of the way through it so far. But the Mm. reason I mention that, it is without a doubt the best um, computer science book that I've read over this last 18 months so far. Mm. Um, it doesn't dick you around in the trivialities of things. It doesn't go, oh, here's how you do this one simple thing and then make you 20 exercises on it. It's like, here, cool. Here's how you do this. I'm going to show you example. I'm going to show you, you know, where that goes wrong. Now let's move on. And just sort of incrementally building and getting to the cool stuff faster, which I think is really important. Like, and, you know, Sandow, from what I understand, does this in justice i've read it but it's like don't treat your reader like an idiot but also don't treat them like they're an expert in the area treat just treat them like an adult um and i think really good writing does that the other thing i was going to say is uh that course is also freely available on youtube and it's just it's so cool that you can go to like mit open courseware or stanford or harvard and just watch some of their you know intro to economics intro to discrete mathematics, intro to political philosophy, get some of these really important big ideas into your own head as delivered by, surprisingly, the most well-paid people in the world doing what they do. Therefore, probably pretty good at it. Yeah. Again, preaching to the converter there. Um, I couldn't agree more. That's one of the... Been one of the more prominent fetishes that I've taken up over the last couple of years is the free online learning. Um, I was going to ask, like, what did you think of rationale? I haven't finished it, but we're on a bit of a book tangent. Uh, what did you think of rationality, rationality in the end? Yeah, not bad. Um, <laughs> uh, like, we'll probably reread it, let's say that. Um, more is just a reminder that like these are important concepts and sort of just as that that wide-ranging overview of um, just linking them all together. There's not too many books where they're all sort of in the one spot. For the most part, though, I'm already on board with that um, and I would rather spend time reading more technical books, you know, on game theory, on probability theory. Not uh, as, as a comparison... I'm much more likely to read Rational Choice in Uncertain World again. That that was a great book. However, reading Rationality was much easier. Yeah. Let's say, like, I enjoyed reading it because, like, I knew most of the concepts, super easy writing. It's mostly superficial. Whereas it was much more of a slog going through Rational Choice, but that shifted many more cogs in my mind. Yeah cool that's all i wanted to know did you have anything so sorry the only thing i was going to say is the reason that i think so like rationality didn't change many cogs in my mind but the reason i think it's it can be useful to read those books again is in the future because you know that it hadn't done that like 
Mm. Then you read it again. You're just like, oh, actually, this child is differently now. You know, have I, have I strayed from the path or was that um, view I had previously incorrect? And now I've updated. Yeah, yeah, yeah that's great. Um, and just to support that general point of just revisiting books over the years, which is, yeah, again, I unsurprisingly had this exact thought today as I walked over to the bookshelf. Like, it is just so, this is going to sound super pretentious and lame and nerdy, but <laughs> welcome back to the show. <laughs> it is just so pleasurable having a bookshelf full of these books that I like, um, just to reference. Like, go back and just revisit these books and like... I, I know you, you've got your bookshelf in your sort of office area. I've got my bookshelf in my living room and I really, really enjoy that just to be able to see them and look at them and look at books that I've read years ago and be like, oh, fuck, like that's a really good book and just flip through and look at your highlights again and just open new ideas and um, feel what the experience is like reading it two years later with a, a different different mindset kind of thing. Yeah, I... This this might sound silly that I reread like I reread Map and Territory Iliaz's Map and Territory and you might be like did you really ever take a break from reading <laughs> yeah yeah <laughs> but yeah so probably the the first time I read Map and Territory was eighteen months ago ish let's say maybe two years and I remember it being such a slog uh, you know reading start to finish not just isolated essays. Um, I remember being such a slog. So many of the ideas were novel to me. I didn't comprehend a lot of them. This time, you know, it was like trying to drink cement through a straw. This time it was much more like hot knife through butter though. And that was really cool to experience. And not only experience to know that I've learned a lot, but also greater appreciate just actually there's a lot of importance here that, or import, I think that's what you say here that... um, (laughs) that I was mm. missing um, and that, yeah, just feeling validated on that path. Just an interesting experience. That's mm. all I'll say. Yeah. No, well, we're getting super nerdy and that's a good, that's a good sign to wrap it up. Um, <laughs> if it was a any... good sign to wrap it up, then we would have never started. <laughs> yeah, true. Um, any other, any, any other finishing thoughts? So was there anything that you're bullish or bearish on this week? No, I think I'm, I'm bowing out of that for the moment. Just, yeah. yeah, I'll stick with the throwing out my jocks and socks. Yeah, as nice. being adult what about you closing words any wise wise wisdom to impart um oh yeah well, i guess the whole i well one of the big ideas of the episode of november um so yeah you have i presumably you'll have your link up somewhere to donate to yeah uh maybe we'll shout that out next episode people have probably stopped listening at this point but yeah we're getting <laughs> yeah. we're getting around november not that you can't can see it because this is an audio only podcast but yeah yeah yeah, so keep keep an eye out for the Movember donations, folks. Um, but yeah, anyway, donate yourself, set up some donating and yeah, all the rest of it. But don't forget to be a good person on the local level and <laughs> say hi to the people at Coles and good, you know, good customer service goes a long way. Definitely. All right. See Bye. ya. And that's all we have for today. We thank you for tuning in. If you enjoyed the episode, we would love it if you could leave a rating, review, or even share it with a friend. If you have any thoughts, you can send an email to conduit.aus at gmail.com. Thanks again, and we'll speak with you next week.